good. Yeah, so go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, so hi, I'm Louis Alday, uh, and Joseph has asked me here today to talk about a project that I launched last year called Liberated Texts. Um, and then also, I think we're going to touch on kind of semi-related but somewhat uh, separate my uh, PhD research to do with um, the British Council and the Persian Gulf uh, and what I call cultural propaganda. Awesome. So just to start off, if you can tell us kind of the background of Liberated Text, how it came to be, and then uh, how it uh, produced the first volume of, of collected text. Uh, and then we can talk about one of your articles that I found particularly interesting, which was the books as propaganda and kind of the, the introductory article for the first volume. Oh, yeah. Um, so on a very basic level, um, Liberated Text is a book review website, um, but not for not in this, not in like most, or it, as far as I know, all book web review websites, it's not just new books. Uh, and on the contrary, it's largely for older books that have been, I mean, I want to be very clear that these are not necessarily forgotten books. Um, because I think, you know, obviously within certain spheres, people will know some of these books extremely well. But the point being, they have been underappreciated or overlooked or to some extent forgotten in a more broader mainstream sense. Um, in some cases, and you know, we can discuss this when we talk more specifically about books as propaganda, in some cases they are books that have been actively suppressed. Um, in others, they're more the, the more ones that just haven't received the attention or the lasting attention that they deserve because of more structural factors not necessarily directly targeted at those books. Um, and the thing, it's quite broad in, in themes and topics, but what links them all is essentially anti-imperialist, anti-colonial themes um, and the history of communism and revolution globally. Um, in terms of the, in, like I say, they're not necessarily forgotten. Um, some are more well-known than others, and some are much older than others. Um, some are more recent and just have not been picked up or not been reviewed. Um, and that's, I mean, that's one function that I want Liberate Text to perform is to provide an outlet for things that either recently when they were released or previously when they were released, didn't get the attention they deserve largely because they weren't reviewed. Uh, or in some cases they were, were reviewed negatively. Um, and that's another thing maybe we can talk about when we talk about my introductory article, because to be specific, you know, the, the CIA and others um, have been specifically aware of the utility and the importance, not only of books, but of book reviews specifically. Um, and that's in, that's in the sense of both getting books that they want to have attention, more attention in the mainstream, or conversely, attacking books that, they, that go against their narrative, or just making sure that those books don't get picked up and reviewed. Um, because one thing, and maybe we can talk a little bit about what, where this came from, but one thing that definitely was on my mind as I kind of came up with this project was the fact that it's extremely hard to get a book published that goes against uh, 
kind of mainstream imperialist narratives, um, especially to do with kind of ongoing issues. Um, <clears throat> to some extent, if it's kind of historical, um, you can get away with more. Um, but even then, there are issues. Um, but that's essentially only half of the battle, because let's say you're, you successfully get a book published or, and you know, obviously self-publishing and the internet has provided kind of more avenues for a broader range of topics to be published. But that's only half the battle, because if you get a book published, but you don't have your own kind of established standing on social media or, or other uh, media, and it doesn't get reviewed, it doesn't get put in bookshops, it doesn't even get put in kind of for, you know, leftist quote unquote bookshops because they tend to be run by anarchists or, or trots or whatever. It can, a book can essentially just not ever really be picked up um, beyond the kind of core following who might be aware of it already. Um, so, you know, you know, and I stress, I'm not naive enough to think one website and one, you know, annual uh, published reviews is going to be enough to single-handedly change that, but I hope it could be a small, um, a small pushback against that. Um, and I, I guess it would maybe become a little bit less abstract if we discuss a little bit more of the detail, but it's, it's up to you how you, how you how you want to do that. Yeah, so I, I thought you did a good job of discussing this in, in your first article, the introductory article on books as propaganda, especially at the end, you, you mentioned um, Domenico Losoro's book on, on Stalin and kind of the entailing uh, controversy with, with that and its English publication being denied by, by Verso Books, which I think is a, a good example of what you're saying with respect to the how politicized the publication process can be, even for someone like uh, Losoro, who's, who is pretty well known uh, and has published many books. But I'm, I'm, so I'm curious on, on kind of the two fronts that you analyze books as methods of both themselves conveying propaganda and being used as tools of propaganda and then having to be kind of um, quelled for their potentially revolutionary effects or potentially uh, counter hegemonic narratives or, or dissenting narratives. And the one you focus on in the beginning, at least, is Kwame Nkrumah's neocolonialism and kind of how the CIA played a role in monitoring this book's uh, availability in the United States. So can you talk a little bit more about, about the research going into this and, and also tell the story a little bit for people who are unfamiliar? Yeah, definitely. So, um, so I mean, I, I guess the, the broader context to all of this is the realization on my part, probably, I don't know, at some point in the last few years that most of what I felt to be the most insightful, most beneficial and kind of clearest and sharpest analysis I was reading in, in books was not from new books um, and not always from especially well-known books. Um, so that's the kind of broader context that I started thinking about this and being struck by the difference in insightfulness and clarity between you know i'm not i'm not for a second suggesting that good stuff is not being written right now it, it is but there is a generally different tone and quality i would say certainly in some in some in some fields and in some topics um 
So that was one thing. Then the other thing is, I guess, as I kind of lost some of my own naivety to some extent and learned more, the growing, a growing awareness of severe problems with what people would term leftist publishing or leftist publishers. Um, and I'm primarily speaking about the Anglophone, um, basically US, UK audience, primarily, um, because they dominate anyway in English. Um, and then considering, like you say, for example, how political it is, which books get translated and which don't, which books get reviewed at all, or which books get reviewed positively or not, and you know which books the author gets invited onto the, you know, I don't know, Jacobin's podcast or not, etc., and the way these various things interlink, um, and then a kind of specific spark for me, which kind of linked a lot of these things together that were already kind of brewing in my head, was when I read, I was reading a book called The Threat to Reason by Dan Hind. I don't know, at some point in the last four, four years, something like that. It's not actually the main thrust of the book, but it makes a reference to uh, the CIA's control and influence over the publishing industry um, during the Cold War. Uh, and give some very specific examples. And what it was referencing was something called the Church Committee, um, which again, in some circles is a relatively, is a, is a, is a pretty well-known uh, thing, but I think that was the first time I'd heard of it. Um, basically the Church Committee was an internal Senate investigation into the activities of US intelligence agencies. Um, I think the investigation kind of went on throughout the duration of 1975 and then the findings were published in 1976. Um, and the, it's on the Senate website, the full report, which is hundreds of pages. Um, it's the main reason we know about MKUltra, COINTELPRO, um, Operation Mockingbird, Operation Family Jewels. It's one of the, it's one of the, the most important kind of public domain documents about US intelligence activities. Um, I'm assuming most of the people that would be likely to be watching and listening to this would probably know what those things are. Uh, if you don't and you're listening, I would encourage you to look up what those, those operations were. I was already aware of most of them to some extent, but what really struck me was the section to do with publishing um, because it makes very, very clear the, I mean, suppose I was going to, I was going to say influence, but it, it's almost more than influence, really. It's, it's control, um, CIA direct control over book publishing, um, and it gives kind of broad brush details of what that control extended to, um, which I'll, I'll read a, a couple of them now. Um, the CIA could get books published or distributed abroad without revealing any US influence by covertly subsidizing foreign publications or booksellers. It could get books published which should not be quote unquote contaminated by any overt tie-in with the US government, especially if the position of the author is delicate. It could get books published for operational reasons regardless of commercial viability. It could initiate and subsidize indigenous national or international organizations for book publishing or distributing purposes. And it could stimulate the writing of politically significant books by unknown foreign authors 
either by directly subsidizing that author or indirectly through literary agents and publishers. Um, and like I say, it, it, it go, you know, that's just a that's just a kind of broad brush. It then gives more detail. Um, so, for example, before the end of 1967, the CIA had <clears throat> produced, subsidized or sponsored in some way over a thousand different titles. Um, and what I found, again, what I found very interesting is only 25% of those were written in English. So you've actually got evidence of the CIA having an immense global network of publishing, publishing in multiple languages. Um, and it says sometimes the author of those books were aware they were being subsidized by the CIA, and sometimes they weren't. Um, and that's a common thing throughout what has been documented in the Cold War um for example in the cultural cold, cold war and other books um that much of the anglophone left not solely but predominantly or particularly the anglophone left was in some way subsidized uh sponsored or shaped by the cia and other intelligence agencies and again this is all extremely well documented um and i guess what reading this from the, my position at, at the time a couple of years ago, it immediately, immediately made me think of contemporary issues. Um, one obvious example being Syria, um, a topic on which reams and reams and reams of really bad, um, basically overtly uh, pro-imperialist books have been published, but by leftist authors. Uh, sorry, well, left, leftist authors, but also by leftist publishing houses um, and kind of using a lot of the terminology of the left and presenting itself explicitly as a leftist position, but something that the, you know, the State Department would barely change a word of, you know, really that bad. Um, so that says to me that, and that's just one example, that says to me that even though you know, I'm not suggesting for a second the role of books and the influence of books is the same in 2022 than it is than it was in you know the 60s. Um, but they're still significant, um, and you know the idea that another thing that the, the Church Committee revealed, by the way, was the extensive infiltration of academia um, by the CIA which is obviously directly linked because a key way that a book gets sales and gets read and gets influence and, and yeah, influences discourse and, and people is by being added to um, reading lists. Um, there's, an, you know, there's obviously a harbor debate about the influence of academia and you know, does it matter if students read that or not? That's a kind of separate thing. A, a way in which a book can get longevity and exposure and sales is by being recommended and added to curriculum. And so if you've simultaneously got the CIA having immense influence, if not control over publishing, and then similar in academia, that obviously is gonna to amount to an extensive influence over discourse. Um, and, the, and this is putting it crudely, but the, 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 the intention basically of that campaign was to create a left, quote unquote, a, you know, the left that was anti-communist and not anti-imperialist. 
So, you know, some issues would, would be good. Um, they would allow, even in, even in these journals and magazines that we know were now funded by the CIA, there would be some good stuff in it and, and writers that you would be very uh, surprised to, to write in them. In those cases, presumably because they weren't aware of the CIA funding because they used, you know, umbrella front organizations and had these umbrella networks. And um, so what was kind of in my head reading this was, you know, the idea that the CIA developed this enormous network of influence and control and assets um, and then packed it up after the end of the Cold War. You know, it's a laughable proposition. Obviously, what they did is maintain, so sustained, grew, improved, enhanced these networks. Um, and of course, a major change since that time is, is the internet, which has provided another sphere of, um, another battleground of, of information, basically. But I guess one of my contentions and the contentions of liberated text is that books still matter. Um, and there's been numerous things kind of as these ideas have been forming in my head that have kind of further compounded that feeling for me. Um, you know, a quite obvious one is you regularly come across um, revolutionaries or political leaders talking explicitly about reading a certain book or a certain author having an extremely formative um, impact on their, on their trajectory in their life. Um, that's very common. Um, or for example, I remember being very interested in when I discovered the list of 100 books that George Jackson had in his cell um, when, he, when he died, which is like incredible. It's, again, that's online. You can, if you haven't seen that, I'd recommend looking it up. Um, and, then, and then directly linked to that, I remember reading a few years ago that a really good book called Black Against Empire, um, which is a brilliant account of the, the Black Panther Party, um, is banned in the California um, prison system. Um, and, and then again, reading a little bit more to that, lots of, lots of books are banned in different prison systems in the US. Um, so again, that tells me that, you know, essentially our, our enemies are aware of the, the power and importance, ongoing power and importance of books. Um, you know, I, I'll stress that's not to say, because I think some people, would probably push back on that contention to some extent because of the way in which people take in um, information and the kind of dominance of, you know, essentially the internet and specifically social media, which I think has done all kinds of things to our attention spans and the way that we take in information. I'm not suggesting otherwise, but um, I think there is still something about books. Um, and to go back, I've kind of wandered a little bit, but to go back to your, your specific question, um, <coughs> I'm not sure if this was the final thing that pushed me actually specifically to this project, but it was certainly one of them. And that was discovering, uh, well, two things. The first, discovering an internal CIA uh, review of uh, Nkrumah's neocolonialism, um, which I read for the first time maybe five or six years ago. Uh, if you haven't, if anyone hasn't read it and they're listening, I would highly recommend reading it. Um, so yeah, it was extremely interesting to see 
or to read the CIA review um, that was, I think it was written by their like their internal, one of their internal archive, archival intelligence people and sent to various senior people within the, within the organization. Um, the tone of the, the review itself is kind of quite, <clears throat> quite neutral. Like it's not like an attack uh, on the book or on Krumah, but it's very, it's not hard to discern that they're concerned with this book. Uh, and they highlight a chapter, in spe a specific chapter, um, because it's saying it's, it's of most interest to the CIA. And it's in that chapter that Krumah basically names names and outlines very, very clearly how and who is responsible for enforcing the US neocolonial role in Africa. Um, and I, again, I think that speaks to something I've realized over the last few years as well, is that it's relatively safe to take kind of abstract general positions against things, you know, against imperialism or against racism. Or, but if you, it's when you name names and when you name names not 70 years ago, you talk about things that are happening right now, that's when you, uh, you get into problems. And the Nkrumah book is a, is, a, is a perfect example of that because that review, the internal, so that book came out in 1965. And I think that review was, was, was in November 1965, maybe December 1965. In February 1966, Nkrumah was deposed in a, in a CIA arranged coup. Um, so then I began wondering, shit, is there a connection between this review and the coup happening three months later. And then I especially started wondering that because the, the review ends by saying copies of this book have been sent to X, Y, and Z. And one of the departments mentioned is the Africa department of the CIA's covert ops department. And it says, you know, copies have been sent for these departments to take whatever action they, they deem necessary. So then I was amazed at a certain point after reading that review, when I was reading the transcript of an interview, well, I initially read a transcript and then I actually found the, the video of it, a video with um, Nkrumah's um, longtime kind of confidant and literary executive and editor, um, who was a British, British woman called June Milne. And she flat out, basically, she's asked about neocolonialism and she flat out says she thinks that that was the final straw and the reason for the coup, basically. And she would be in a very good position to, to if not know, to make a very educated guess on that. Uh, and she's, yeah, she's completely explicit about that. And I mean, even without that, the timing is compelling. You know, two, month, two to three months after that has been sent, he's deposed. Um, so I guess, yeah, all those kind of things were swirling in my head. Um, and it also there's one other, one other thing that really stuck with my, in my mind, which is, which, I, which is on the Liberate Text website, which is a quote from the CIA's um, covert operations director in the 60s. Um, and he said, books differ from all other propaganda media primarily because one single book can significantly change the reader's attitude and action to an extent unmatched by the impact of any other single medium. 
This is, of course, not true of all books at all times and with all readers, but it is true significantly often enough to make books the most important weapon of strategic, in brackets, long range propaganda. Um, and, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily arguing that that remains the case and books are the most important weapon of long range uh, strategic propaganda, but I would argue they remain significant. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much. That that was really a very comprehensive overlook. And it, it made me think about the a group that I'm kind of familiar with, which is the uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was founded in, in the 50s. And, yeah, was, and as you said, right. Yeah, and, and very overtly funded by the CIA from its origins. Um, but also, I think it, that speaks to, I think, the most important part of with respect to books today, which is uh, who's reading books today, I think, as you pointed out, is going to be, especially from these uh, leftist book publishers, um, is going to be people on the left or people who already think they're on the left or trying to learn more and whatever, consolidate their leftism, whatever. And it definitely shapes the contours of what is acceptable on the political left in the United States, in the, in the West. Um, as you said, I think the most important part of that being uh, not allowing for anti-imperialism in any substantial way or enforcing sort of a view of, of leftism that is like domestic socialism and nothing international whatsoever. Um, certainly not a, 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 an anti-Zionist left or a, a pro-Palestinian left, or as you mentioned with, with Syria, um, a left that's willing to kind of accept the, the, the kind of propaganda about, about the war and, uh, about you know the U.S. justifications for why why we're bombing Syria, for example, um, and I kind of I wanted to kind of go more into that topic uh, because I know you also wrote a monthly review article about Syria and kind of about the propaganda on that subject. So kind of maybe take a slight detour and just talk a little bit more about that because I'm curious about how this relates to new media. Uh, I know the focus is, is on books predominantly, and, and if you could mention a little bit more about the books that are written on that subject, because I think this is a, an important point to show how the remaining kind of readership of these texts is still kind of the, the potentially political and, and potentially anti-imperialist anti left, but that's getting very restricted by what's willing to be put out there into, into uh into readership for for leftists in particular, and Syria, I think, is is a great example of that and shaping how we understand the situation, um, what we're willing to criticize in the United States, for example. So yeah, if you could talk a little bit briefly about that, and then we can shift into the next subjects. Yeah, sure. Um, so I mean, uh, again, some this is be so, so before I established liberated text. At some point in the last two years or so, maybe a little bit more longer, I went to a very, <coughs> a very large and in some ways very good bookshop in London called Foils. Um, it, it's, it's huge, you know, it's multiple floors. Like I say, in, in many ways, it's a good bookshop. Um, I went to, so it, it's, it's large enough and has such a range of um, topics that it actually has a, like a Syria maybe not a Syria section, but it had a Syria shelf. Um, and I went to look at it, which 
you know, I could imagine many people would do wanting, you know, well-intentioned uh, people keen to learn more would, would do that kind of thing. And I looked at that shelf and it was extremely depressing because you, there were lots of books, most of them published in the last 10 years, um, well, 11 years now, since, you know, since, since 2011. Many of them supposedly offering, you know, kind of the other view or, you know, a left-wing view or, you know, whatever that means. And like I say, they are, they are imperialist propaganda. There's no other word for it. Um, you know, a specific example is some of the stuff written by someone called Robin Yassin Kassab, um, who has been published more than once by Pluto Press. Um, I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a reactionary. He is a, so in the article that you mentioned that I wrote in monthly review, which actually a very long time ago now, it was in 2016, I, he's one of the people that I focused on, kind of used as a bit of a, I used as, I looked at a few people closely to kind of make a broader point about a lot of the voices that were being portrayed as, you know, the, the left position on Syria. Um, yeah, he, I mean, no, he's openly reactionary. He openly cheered on um, military operations by Turkey. Um, I mean, not he's so like anti-left that you know he was he was part of the attacks on Corbyn, for example. You know, he wasn't he's not he wasn't even like a, a social democrat, which is which is what Corbyn is was. He was a you know violently anti-Corbyn. And I think at one point basically tweeted calling for him to be killed, you know, in, in other words, like, you know, like really deranged stuff. Um, yeah, this is the guy who, and, and, and one of those books has been republished by Pluto. Um, and I've actually seen, you know, in the wild, I've seen people reading that book. Um, one time I actually went up and spoke to the person <laughs> and tried to kind of caution them, which I, I think they were receptive to in some ways. Um, but my point being that multiple books, not only by Pluto, um, including by Haymarket as well, and other, I mean, basically all of the, the main leftist publishers, they have published books that if the US state was not involved in some way in their publication, if they were, they wouldn't have changed anything. You know, I'm not saying that that book was, you know, manifested by the CIA. Um, but the kind of salient point is that if it, if it had been, they wouldn't have changed it. Um, because it essentially, like you said, people looking to learn more, to, to get deeper into whatever, you know, being on the left, whatever they people might think that means. And it funnels them back into a pro-imperialist pro position where to even talk about the fact there is an enormous large-scale US proxy war being run. This is, you know, several years ago, because obviously now there's overt US military occupation of Syrian territory, but even before that had happened, there was an intellectual atmosphere and discourse where to even point out, well, no, hang on, there is an enormous, not even hidden, massive CIA proxy war being operated out of Jordan on one side and Turkey on the other. 
that is funneling thousands of fighters and arms into Syria. To even mention that, you were, you know, you can imagine you were, and still are, immediately an Assadist, a Putinite, a Stalinist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's like you say, it's a clear disciplining process that you don't say that. Uh, and I know lots of people, you know, to this day, who just don't really go there on Syria because they can't deal with the opprobrium that saying what they actually think will they'll face. And there are clear, I mean, this is getting away from books now, but it's kind of linked to it. Um, because books, so so I went on, I went on um, East Tisa podcast and spoke with, with Sina. And I think he's a little bit more of the mind that, you know, people don't do the reading anymore. You know, people don't read actually very much, which I'm not gonna say there's probably not some element of truth to, but even if I accept that argument to an extent, what I would say was that, that it doesn't necessarily matter. So a book doesn't need to be read by everyone to have influence because it, and again, this comes back to reviewing. If a book is reviewed widely and spoken about on podcasts, extracts are tweeted online, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It has a, a disproportionate influence and role in setting the limits of discourse and the parameters of discourse, even, if, even with people that haven't read it. And it gives the authors of it credibility because, you know, I've, I've been published by Pluto about Syria. So, you know, my, my position on Syria supposedly, you know, is valid and is a left position. Um, and, you know, one of the ironies of that article is that, you know, I said, obviously, by virtue of writing this, I'm going to be attacked as an acidist, as X, Y, Z, and inevitably I did, and I still am pretty much every day at some, you know, by someone. Um, and it's just meaningless. It's just nonsense. It's just intimidation to try and get people to shut up and to, to you know, go, do you know what? I can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. Um, and, you know, it's unfortunately quite effective, especially when some people involved are, you know, extremely aggressive and, you know, actually carry out practices of intimidation to get people to, to be quiet. Um, and, yeah, that's one of the kind of, that was one of the foremost things in my mind when I was reading this historical stuff that made it very clear to me that this is a phenomenon that has not ceased to be relevant uh, and remains ongoing. Because, so because Syria is something that I had, um, I had written about, um, and I, I actually lived in Syria, um, people often ask me, oh, what should I read? And, you know, I struggle to recommend things because the overwhelm, what I find myself doing is saying, oh, don't read X, Y, Z which is a very unsatisfying answer. And it's also unsatisfying for me that there are so many things that I know well-meaning people will end up reading um, and be extremely misinformed deliberately as a result. Um, yeah, I've probably gone on enough about that. Well, no, it's, it's a very good point because I think with respect to books, for example, right now, I'm reading uh, Walter Rodney, the, the new Walter Rodney book that they published about his lectures on the Russian Revolution, just to take this as an example. And he talks pretty consistently about how 
during the Cold War, pretty much every, after a certain point, pretty much every American author, even on the left, who wrote about the Soviet Union was in some capacity fulfilling some, like, it wasn't even that they, as you mentioned, were explicitly funded by the CIA. In some instances, they are by like the Hoover Institution or whatever. But in, in most cases, it was like the institutionalization on the left of a certain view of the Soviet Union or the institutionalization on the left of a certain view of, of X situation or whatever that comes from being disciplined into believing that that is the proper way uh, for the left to view this. So, it, it kind of becomes more of like a psychological reaction, I guess, to, you know, oh, I can't, I can't go that far. As you said, going that far is kind of the way people frame it. I hear that all the time, people being like, I'll take that, but I, I can't go that far um, on something. So I think it, that speaks to kind of the way that it's no longer like a big conspiracy that the CIA is funding every single podcast or every single new media, whatever, but it's really more about how we kind of psychologically discipline ourselves i think that i think that's an important point because obviously a bad faith reaction or kind of argument or counter argument to the kind of things that i'm saying is you know obviously oh conspiracy theorist label but the right. idea that i'm saying that every single author i'm referring to was you know directly funded by the cia and fed lines by the cia obviously not you know right. i mean as the church committee says there are some instances where it is very direct, there are. Um, and I would imagine that is still the case. Um, one example that I didn't mention earlier, which again, I found quite compelling, is there was an example of um, a book that was commissioned um, and paid for by the CIA, I think knowingly, on the author's behalf, I mean, being reviewed in the New York Times by another writer who was also commissioned and paid by the CIA. Um, I mean, anyone who knows anything about the New York Times would, would not necessarily be surprised by that. Um, but I found that quite compelling. But again, it's not always going to be direct like that. It's, it's about the broader intellectual atmosphere and acceptable parameters of debate that are fostered. Um, that it doesn't even need to be that direct. Because, you know, now in 2022, we're talking about decades and decades and decades of this. Um, and done in a very, very smart way. So it doesn't, it often doesn't need to be so direct. Um, you know, another person I spoke about in that 2016 article is a, you know, supposedly Marxist academic called Gilbert Ashar, um, who works at SOAS. <clears throat> and he's, you know, he's a very, he's a prominent figure. He's published multiple books. Um, in some circles, he's you know considered a serious voice to listen to on on the Middle East, on Marxism, on Orientalism, on various topics. Um, and his position basically on Syria has consistently been, I mean, and his position on Libya was equally dis despicable. His position on Syria has been like it's the fault of the U.S. for not sufficiently arming the rebels, quote unquote. That's bad. I mean, I'm not even really being crude, that is his position. Um, and this is after, even in mainstream sources like the Washington Post have revealed, you know, billions and billions and billions of CIA money being funneled into arming these people. Um, 
And not to mention the fact that a couple of years ago, it was revealed that uh, Ashada was running a kind of basically like a secret lecture series for the British Ministry of Defence. Um, and he just, that briefly caused a bit of a, a ruckus, but he seems to have just kind of batted that off. Um, and nothing really seems to stick in spite of, for example, supporting, I and mean, he later tried to backtrack, but he supported basically the NATO um, no-fly zone and intervention on Libya. Uh, I think officially his position was, you know, the left should neither support nor oppose. Um, but, you know, what does that mean? Um, and he explicitly said as well, for example, that, you know, if there's a lack of clarity about what post-Gaddafi Libya looks like, um, we know for sure it's going to be better than Gaddafi's Libya. Which is, you know, over a decade on, just, to, you know, it, it was obscene at the time, but, you know, what has happened in the 10 years since and what was predict predictably going to happen, uh, it's just obscene. But none of these things really stick. Um, and he's still a kind of, you know, academic Marxist luminary. And to take it back to books, there was, um, I think last year, maybe, yeah, I think last year, there was a translated uh, volume, selected works of a, um, of a Lebanese Marxist called Mahdi Ahmed. Um, and Gilbert Ashar wrote the preface to that. Um, and so, and you know, again, that's a political decision because that gives him further legitimacy. He's introducing the work of a dead revolutionary who has no say. So yeah, sorry, one thing I should have said is he, he was assassinated in the 80s. Um, and he, so he has no say over that. And you know, these basically imposters like Ashar are taking credibility from dead revolutionaries who, whose work is being published and they have no say in the matter. Um, and again, that's a decision of the people involved and of the publisher. Um, anyway. Yeah, and I, I think it's uh, it, it's interesting with respect to Libya how just how uncommon it is uh, still amongst the left to actually critically analyze what happened after the NATO intervention. So we we did a an interview with a, a Libyan in in Sirt right now who was telling us. I mean, he's grew up and lived there, and he was telling us about his his life, basically two hour conversation about what's happened since the NATO intervention and afterwards. And just, I mean, unbelievably horrifying things, all very much because of the United States role in, in Libya. But this kind of thing is not really uh, popularized in any way. Like it's, it's still very difficult to get that kind of narrative about, about Libya even. And then, and, and like you said, it's fascinating because like the best you'll kind of get from people is, is this kind of tepid, like, oh, you know, we should neither this nor that, we should, or you get people kind of being like, um, I'll, I'll be neutral in this situation, like I think it's bad, but I think it's pretty obvious that when you have a situation like that, the US kind of imperial role is, is very, or the Western imperial role in general is very imperative to resist first and foremost. And when people don't outright condemn that, they kind of be, you know, kind of defer that or, or kind of, vacillate on that it, it, it's pretty revealing what they believe but i'd kind of like to pick up on that note too with respect to not just the 
the theoretical um, opportunities for resistance on the left, like the people who, who could be articulating an anti-imperialist standpoint, but aren't because of propaganda. But I also wanna to touch on kind of the last subject, which would be how cultural propaganda plays a role in empire itself in justifying imperialism and in, in perpetuating imperialism and neo-colonialism um, on a colonized population. So can we talk a little bit more about the British Council, Kuwait, Bahrain, and, and kind of how cultural propaganda is used also on a colonized population to, to keep them uh, you know, against rebelling against imperialism and neo-colonialism? Yeah, um, so this, you know, this is a bit of a shift from what we've been talking about, which is fine. Um, and it's also a little bit difficult to know exactly what level to, to pitch what I'm saying, because the, the British Empire's role in, in, the, in the Gulf is not a particularly well-known uh, one. Um, so just kind of, you know, very compacted, simplified history. The, the Persian Gulf uh, was never formally, or the, the countries on, 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 the, um, on the coast thereof, were never, it was never formally part of the British Empire. It was never marked red on a map. Um, more recently, they've, when, that, when the British imperial role is acknowledged, they're occasionally referred to as protectorates, but they were never actually really protectorates either. either. Um, they occupied a kind of quite strange, um, unclear position within the imperial system, British imperial system, but nevertheless were thoroughly incorporated into it to the extent that I've come across, for example, officials, British officials at the time, the specific example I'm thinking was in the 20s, and they're talking about Bahrain, and they're saying, like, you know, our position here, we, are, we have far more influence and control here than we do in some of the princely states in India. But strictly speaking, this isn't the British Empire. Um, so, it's a, so it's a very interesting, and so what it's normally referred to now as is in, informal empire, um, which I think is quite, an, uh, quite a useful uh, term. And so this began um, kind of more or less from the beginning of the 19th century, specifically from 1820. Um, and it was initially a result of British concern with the trade routes to India. Um, obviously over time, uh, that transitioned and uh, with the discovery of oil, the, the region became important in its own right, not because of its proximity to India and, and, and trade routes, but that wasn't for almost a century afterwards. Um, and so in 1820, the, the British destroyed the fleet of the kind of local rival power, um, which was a tribal confederation based in what is now one of the, the Emirates of the United Arab Emirates, uh, Ras al Khaimah. Uh, they were called the Kawasan. Um, and it labeled them pirates. Um, and the topic of piracy is a very interesting one. Um, because that excuse is still used by the British to this day. Um, I think at some point in the last two years, uh, a British government, government minister spoke about Iranian piracy in the Gulf. Um, so, you know, 200 years later, they're using the same excuses. 
Um, and in many ways, it was the British that were the pirates. Um, and they used that label to delegitimize the actions of local actors that they wanted to uh, dominate. Um, I can, I'll, 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 I'll leave it there. Basically, they then enforced a treaty um, on the various tribal uh, families along uh, the coast. Um, and then and throughout the 19th century signed the kind of supplementary treaties with them. And what essentially those treaties did is gave Britain control over foreign relations, made their foreign relations, made them give up the right to, to wage war at sea, made them promise not to allow any other um, European imperial powers into the region, be it Portuguese, French, Dutch, whatever. Um, and in return, Britain would guarantee their right to rule. Um, and, you know, it's <clears throat> the families that those deals were made with are the same families, uh, more or less, in, in power now, 200 years later. And Britain's role in the Gulf is still very, very, uh, very, very prominent. And in some countries, more, more than others, uh, still influential. Um, and that was basically enforced by the constant threat or actual use of violence. So through the, through the um, they had a Persian Gulf Naval Squadron that when required, if a ruler was deemed to be insufficiently pro-British, their fort or their palace or their, you know, the town that they ruled from would be bombarded and occasionally, you know, Marines land. Um, but, you know, as is often the case with colonial relationships, many of these rulers enriched themselves and did benefit from, um, from, you know, the kind of Pax Britannica. Um, and then Britain began to establish naval and when air uh, travel was invented, air bases uh, in the region. And by the kind of, by the 1920s, 1930s, it was referred to as like the Suez of the air because it was the key refueling stop between uh, India, and, India and Britain. And it's at that point um, that my research really begins because it's at that point that uh, Arab nationalist uh, ideology, which at that point in time was increasingly taking on um, anti-imperialist uh, character, began to enter the Gulf, uh, specifically in, in Bahrain and Kuwait, that because oil was discovered there earlier, um, and for other reasons as well, had more, more educated, a more educated population with greater links to, to broader developments in the Arab world, uh, more so, for example, than compared to what we now call the UAE, um, which was then called the Trucial Coast, by the way, as in they signed a truce with Britain. And prior to that, it was called the Pirate Coast, for obvious reasons. Um, that's, the, that's not to say because they were pirates, it's because that's the term that was used by the British to, to delegitimize them, basically. Um, and so the British began to get very concerned about this growing influence of Arab nationalism. Uh, and the, this, this, this influence was, was entering the Gulf in a number of ways, one of which was the return of students from the region, from universities elsewhere in the Arab world, in Iraq, uh, particularly AUB and Beirut, 
to a lesser extent in this era, but more so later on in Egypt, uh, in Syria, they were returning to the region and having been taught in many cases by Arab nationalists in these, in these other, other Arab countries, they returned and they began to influence their, their peers. And then the other main way was the fact that there was a shortage. And the reason that happened, by the way, is because there was no further education facilities available in the Gulf. So they had, anyone who wanted to study had to leave, basically. So that was a big concern of the British, um, especially as because previously they had, people had often gone to Bombay, where they could be more monitored and controlled by the British authorities. But when they began to get more interested in, um, in going into to other places in the Arab world, they were less able to be monitored um, by the British, and that was a big concern. Another concern was lots of non-Gulfy Arab teachers were employed in schools in the Gulf, especially in Bahrain and Kuwait, again, from Syria, from Iraq, um, later on from Egypt. And many of those teachers had trained in Iraq, which after um, basically through the late 20s and early 30s, created an explicitly Arab nationalist uh, curriculum. And many of those teachers used that curriculum in their teaching in the Gulf. And this began to be noticed by the British and caused a lot of concern. Um, but a complicating factor for the British was they couldn't, not only from a kind of PR perspective, they couldn't clamp down on education on a more self-interested logistical one, they couldn't, because this is at the exact time that oil deposits are being discovered in, um, I'm talking like late thirties now, in Bahrain and in uh, Kuwait. So they were fully aware that they needed to begin to train locals even if it's just kind of what they wanted to try and do is restrict it to technical education, because there was already resentment of the locals at not being employed in senior positions in the um, kind of emerging oil companies that were dominated by British or British Indian uh, officials at a senior level on the whole. Um, and that's where the British Council first comes in. Um, the British Council had been established a few years before uh, in 1934. And the British Council was essentially established in response. So the British got interested in cultural and educational propaganda much later than uh, European rivals, um, especially Italy, Germany and France. And the British Council was kind of belatedly established in almost direct response, well, I mean, indirect response really, to Italian and German, uh, and by this point, fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, propaganda efforts in the Arab world specifically. Um, and from the mid thirties onwards, for example, both Italy and Germany were broadcasting um, every single day, uh, Arabic language radio. Um, Italy in particular was also operating a network of schools, many for example, in, in Egypt. Um, and both of them, Germany with more success than Italy, portrayed themselves as anti-imperialist anti-British, pro-Arab, pro-Muslim. And Italy was less, I think one of the main reasons Italy was um, less successful in that is because simultaneously they were invading Abyssinia um, and the people in the region weren't stupid. Um, whereas Germany could more credibly make that case. Um, and they recruited, 
kind of leading German Orientalists um, to speak on the Arabic language radio. Um, and largely because of the way they portrayed themselves and because of anti-British sentiment in the region, much of it linked and growing uh, to, to Palestine, it began to be successful. Um, so that's the context in which um, the British Council was formed. And because of that, the, its first overseas office was in Cairo, um, I think in 1938. Um, and then it moved into Iraq. And then through Iraq, it began, that's when Brit, um, British officials in the Gulf became aware of the British Council as a potential means of um, kind of expertise and support. Um, and then essentially what my, what my research and my PhD looks at is from that moment in 1939 when uh, the British Council first got involved up until 1971, which is when formally um, the states of the Gulf got their independence, although Kuwait 10 years previously in, in 1961. Um, what role did the British Council play in the broader British imperial project? which initially was very much focused on trying to maintain the political status quo. Um, and as it became clear that that wasn't possible, the role of the council essentially shifted or over time, the way it was conceived began to shift as an ideal means to preserve British influence and standing after formally the countries were independent. Um, and more or less the British military presence had ended. Um, and there are key kind of moments in that period from 1939 to 1971 that led to uh, this changing kind of conception. Um, one of which was um, the Abadan crisis, um, which is when Mossadegh, the, the president of Iran, um, privatized the Anglo-Iranian oil company uh, refinery. Um, and overnight, Britain needed to find a, um, an alternative source of, of oil, uh, not only of oil, but also of, of sterling, uh, of investment in, this, in, this, in the pound sterling. Um, and the kind of, the kind of cliched, um, you know, the cliche of you know, oil rich overnight that is probably most true of Kuwait at, this, at that moment in time in the early 50s, because immediately the British demand for Kuwaiti oil rocketed. And not only that, there was a renegotiation of the profit sharing agreement um, and it matched the US-Saudi uh, Aramco agreement, which is a 50-50 agreement. So over, almost literally overnight, Kuwait is not only exporting infinitely more, it's getting more money from what it is exporting. So Kuwait, at, from the mid fifties onwards, basically becomes absolutely fundamental to the British national economy, not only from the perspective of the oil supply, but also because, and they, they, the, kind of, the British push for this uh, very strongly, they reinvested much of those uh, that, that oil revenue into the sterling area. So it became, in two ways, extremely important for, for, for Britain. 
Um, and consequently, the role of the council became more important. Uh, and that was recognized by at this most senior level, by the kind of prime ministerial level from the late 50s onwards. Um, and that kind of concern grew again in 1956 with the Suez crisis, which is when, if anyone doesn't know, when conspiring with France and Israel, um, Britain invaded, Britain, France and Israel invaded Egypt um, following Nasser's um, private nationalization, sorry, of the Suez Canal a few months earlier. It was a complete disaster. The US opposed it. Britain was forced to withdraw, withdraw militarily. It was like a huge national scandal and embarrassment. And that it's at that moment that many people, imperial strategy started to change and people began to realize that the maintenance of the political status quo in Britain's position in the Gulf was not sustainable. It didn't happen overnight, obviously, but that began to ha happen. And consequently, the British Council began to increasingly be conceptualized as a perfect means to, to maintain that influence and standing. And this comes at a time when what's called, uh, you know, like TEFL, you know, teaching English as a foreign language, is being consciously funded, shaped, and, and created by the by indirect cooperation between the US and the UK to really consolidate and formalize English's position as the global language. Um, and I think I think a lot of people would be under the assumption that English almost kind of naturally became globally dominant language because of the British Empire and then the US Empire, almost as like a just a side effect of that. But what's very clear from reading these documents is that it was a conscious and deliberate policy. Um, and so in, so in the mid fifties, there's a document saying, you know, we've got an opportunity here to establish Britain as the, glo you know, the global, uh, sorry, English as the global second language. Um, and it specifically mentions kind of rivals for that position which it says are tainted by, you know, political ideologies. And it's, it, either, it either makes it very obvious or it, it, or it actually says it, that it's referring to Arabic and Chinese, basically. Um, and it received both from the US and the UK governments enormous, or begin to receive significant funding to consciously uh, create this global position, this globally privileged position of English. Um, and of course, the council being a network of a global network of primarily educational and cultural centers that teaches English played a very prominent part in that. Um, and it's part of basically you know, linguistic imperialism, um, which is a, there's a book called Linguistic Imperialism by Robert Phillipson, which is brilliant, which I'd recommend reading. Um, and so by the, by, the, by the 1956 and the Suez crisis, Egyptian teachers in, in particular have begun, and Palestinian, but especially Egyptian, have become very, very dominant in Kuwait and Bahrain, and to a lesser extent throughout the region now, uh, including in what we now call the UAE, but then the Trucial Coast. And these are overtly nationalist Arab nationalists on the whole. And they began to have a, a significant impact on uh, public opinion in the Gulf. Uh, and a key point here as well, actually, is that um, 
British officials at this time commonly understood or commonly portrayed Gulfy Arabs as kind of being hoodwinked or emotionally manipulated by cynical Arab nationalist Egyptians. But what they didn't understand or couldn't understand is that it was not solely, or in many ways wasn't like a, a kind of Egyptian imposition. There was genuine local Arab nationalist sentiment that was longstanding and had been growing since the 30s. Um, and a really fascinating thing, for example, the, the Kuwaiti uh, Ministry of Education made Arab nationalism a key component of the curriculum before Egypt did. Because um, up until that point, Egypt had been, um, the, the, the national curriculum had focused on Egyptian, like pharaonic identity. Um, and for example, one of the founders of the movement of Arab nationalists founded by George Habash was a Kuwaiti uh, called Ahmed al-Khatib, who he only died actually literally a couple of weeks ago. Um, so my point being, one of the things that handicapped the Brit British attempts to suppress the popularity of Arab nationalism was the fact that they understood it as a completely external uh, imposition by largely by Egyptians, when actually there was a, a key local uh, support base as well. Um, I feel like I've massively meandered, so please, please interrupt me. No, no, it, it, it's perfectly fine because that was all very fascinating. I'm, I guess my last kind of things I would be curious about is how this still plays a role today in, in Kuwait, Bahrain and, and the UAE and how, I mean, in particular, I'm, I'm kind of curious how, how this kind of cultural and linguistic imperialism um, have remained after the Gulf War and or potentially were affected by the Gulf War if you can provide any insight into that, I'm kind of curious. Yeah, so, I mean, sorry, maybe one thing I should have said is that mm -hmm. one thing, you know, the influence and the role of, of something which is so long-term in nature as cultural propaganda and educational propaganda is it's hard to measure in like a distinct way. And actually that's an issue for cultural propaganda organizations themselves, because they often find it hard to quantify and justify their funding. Um, and actually, one thing I should say is the British Council these days receives much less government funding and is in many ways largely dependent on the English language teaching revenue it receives. Um, although that's interesting in itself because one of, one of the kind of key components that's been identified as successful or an element of success of cultural propaganda um, is identifying a need in the target audience and then providing that need, but not for free. Because if, you, because if people pay for something, they're much less likely to think that it's propaganda. Because if, if you go to, let's say you go to the British Council and you're getting English language lessons for free, in many people's minds, that's, you're gonna think, okay, what are they getting out of this? But if it's a more seemingly transactional basis that they're just teaching English, you're paying them for it, you're, you're going to be more open to the propaganda element of it because you're not going to be so alert to it. Um, but to switch back to, to its kind of relative success or not, I mean, throughout the Gulf, English is the predominant language in all technical and tertiary education. Um, and in some countries more than others, 
English is becoming the dominant language. Um, obviously, I'm not suggesting that the British Council alone um, is responsible for that, but it's clearly a factor in it. Um, and even things like, for example, that the British Council pushed very much this idea that the best, almost implied only way to learn English is from a native English teacher, i.e. someone from England or America or Britain or America. Research-wise, empirically, that's been shown now to be rubbish, basically, but that, that idea lives on uh, very, very much so. Uh, and essentially, not solely, but largely white, Anglo-American, I guess probably Australian in some ways, teachers benefit from that massively. Um, and there's an, been an article written specifically about that um, and about the role of English in the Gulf. And it, it, it name checks that the council was being involved, but it says that it only really began after 1973 and the, the oil crisis. Uh, so one of the things that my PhD shows is that yes, Definitely the British Council has been involved, but it didn't begin after the oil crisis in 73. It began three decades, four decades earlier. And the, the foundations for that prominent council role that maintains to this day has, has centers throughout the Gulf that are very, very, it's not at all, you know, I know many of my friends in the Gulf, they, they learned their English at, at the British Council. It's very, very common. Um, and that network of centers, basically that was established post, post 1968 when Britain announced it was leaving the region. There was a flurry, there was an expansion, a rapid expansion of the council that had been under discussion for years and centers were established all around it. Um, and like a really obvious example of this new kind of found role for a council, when um, the ruler of uh, Oman was deposed and Sultan Qaboos was installed by the British in a coup in 1970. It was not portrayed as a coup, obviously, it was portrayed as like an internal family business, which it had done four years previously in Abu Dhabi as well. Um, almost immediately post the installation of Britain's man, which was Sultan Qaboos, who only died um, last year, um, the council moved in as a key component of Britain's technical assistance to uh, you know, the new regime of the new enlightened regime of Sultan Qaboos and was immediately helping various different ministries. Um, yeah, so you know, it, it's hard to quantify because of the long-term and kind of disparate nature of these things, but I essentially conclude that I think in many ways it was successful. Um, so for example, I came across a reference to Edward Said visiting he doesn't name the university or the country but i suspect it's probably kuwait he, he gives him he, he recounts an anecdote of visiting he's asked to visit an english language department uh, or an english department of a, of a university in the gulf and he says he's amazed because english is by far the most popular subject at the university but then is but then he's kind of simultaneously dismayed for, for two reasons one People are overwhelmingly choosing it just because it's the global lingua franca and it's the job in, you know, airline industry, oil industry, et cetera, you know, and they're just doing it to get a job. Um, but then also that it's taught 
in an extremely antiquated way, a focus on technical language, which is something the British had always wanted, no interrogation or acknowledgement at all of the colonial inheritance and the reason that English is even being spoken there, and using a very uh, kind of English-dominated curriculum, Shakespeare, etc., uh, and no literature at all from the global south, or very little. Um, and that's that's I think that it was in like 1982. Um, so you know, if the council officials who the period that I study, if they read that anecdote, they would be very pleased with the impact today. Because um, also I should say, I'm pretty confident he is talking about Kuwait University that was established with the, with the um, help and cooperation of the British Council. Um, and many of, the, many of the first people that worked there had been British Council scholars who had studied in, uh, in the UK. I mean, that's been a bit vague to some extent, but it's, uh, I hope that gives an idea of what I'm, what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I think, I think that definitely speaks to, as you, as you mentioned earlier, the continued importance that Kuwait plays in, in the British economy and in the global oil economy. Um, this, is, this is fascinating for me to listen to because uh, I was born in Qatar. Um, and so I'm kind of thinking about my, my parents were working there at the time, both also English speakers. And that's kind of fascinating to think about how that reflects the importance of English in, in the Persian Gulf nations. Um, so I, I think that's probably where I'll, I'll conclude because I don't want to take up any more of your time. But thank you so much. And this was a... Well, I, I mean, I, I feel like yeah. it's been a bit... A bit rambling. I hope it's been. No, no, it was it, it was very informative and uh, especially learning more about the continued kind of role that that linguistic imperialism plays. I think that's a subject of fascination for a lot of people, um, just how important it is about what languages are being given preeminence in, in post-colonial nations is very, very important. And I think that kind of does relate ultimately to kind of what we're, we're thinking about um, in the in the group that runs uh, the, the journal about alternative forms of media and how to kind of utilize uh, alternative sources of information. And, and in seeing, I think, the, what you've been kind of talking about, both the predominance of a certain viewpoint in, in publishing houses, but also in just how media is conveyed using a certain linguistic kind of framework and, and a certain, of, of course, neo-colonial framework. I think that kind of yeah. impacts a lot of what we're really interested in. So thank you so much. It was, it was very informative. A pleasure. Yeah. And uh, so pleasure. I'll I'll upload it and send it to you. And then uh, I guess my last thing would be, is there anything you want to shout out or mention uh, at the end, anything people should look into more? Um, I would say check out liberatetext.com. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're able to, to support what we're doing, because uh, you know, it's completely free, obviously. Uh, consider buying the first collected reviews, um, which you can find on the publisher Ed Magazine's website. Um, and I guess one, one, definitely another thing I'd say is lots of people have a book or books in mind that they feel are, you know, more people should read this book, uh, or you know, this book is really underrated or overlooked. Or you know, if you've got a book in mind like that that you'd want to to write about and review, then Liberate Text is the, the perfect place to do that. Yeah, thanks so much. And uh, and I think definitely everybody should check it out. And it's a very good um, 
alternative reviewing site for sure. So setting up that kind of alternative to the, the uh, very dominant reviewing uh, platforms that exist right now. So yeah, thanks so much. Take care and I'll, I'll stay in touch for sure. Thanks, Joseph. Awesome. Bye.